Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. And I'm Creston. And tonight we're going to talk about, well, we're going to do kind of a follow-up on the show we did on where do you put your business logic. We've decided it belongs in the database. So we'll talk about that tonight. Uh, but before we get into that, I, how was your week? Super busy, even though it's supposed to be the getting up on the holiday times and things are supposed to slow down. Um, working on two two things I'll mention from different consulting stuff that I've been working on. One, do working on a Rails upgrade, and those are always fun because, like, there's this one project that has about two thousand tests, and so did the upgrade, and then of course there's things that fail mostly due to old gems, and out of those two thousand tests, had about a hundred that were failed failed so you know that's about Ugh. was that like five percent or so but that's still that's like a hundred tests so i have to go through and say all right what is this thankfully i had a big uh revelation with a couple of them that resolved like 60 of them immediately well it fixed two things actual things that ended up fixing 50 plus of them so that's that's always great to have, but I still got a whole bunch of others I got to go through to figure out what the issues are with those. Wow. The other thing is that, um, so one of my clients wanted to upgrade to Postgres 15. And the thing that they do their backup differently than any of my other clients, they basically use snapshots. So they don't use uh, like, Oh, what is it called? Um, PG Backrest is a very popular third-party tool people use, or Postgres provides PG Base Backup, which is what I tend to use a lot. Uh, they actually didn't want to do any of that due to the volume of wall, uh, write-ahead log that they generate, mm. basically a lot of the logs. So they wanted to go with just a once-a-day snapshot-based backup. Um, and it's a huge database. It's you know multi-terabytes. So they're basically just using AWS, um, was it, yeah, the, yeah, EBS snapshots. But to do that, you have to put the database in a state so, such that it's ready to do a snapshot. Now they changed how that worked in Postgres 15. So it used to be you could call, okay, start the backup to the database, you back it up, and then you call stop the backup. And no fuss, no frills, everything works. Yeah. Well, that doesn't work anymore in Postgres oh. 15. Oh, no. <laughs> because that was actually called an exclusive backup. Um, and they basically did away with that. But the problem with the new way of doing it, you have to state the start of the backup and then state the stop of the backup in the same database session. Oh, so I can't just in a bash script, just say, all right, start the backup. And then two hours later, run another bash command that creates a new Postgres session to say, okay, stop the backup. I now have to keep that database session running for as long as that snapshot takes to happen. Oh, ew. And what? I mean, Why? I'm sure there's, I'm sure the third party backup tools handle this in a certain way, but I was kind of like, okay, well, how am I going to handle this? And I had seen some reports of other consultants that they had used like 
Um, I think coroutine, there's a way within a bash script to basically create two different processes and actually communicate and uh, read, excuse me, write data to it and then read back the responses. So I spent some time looking at that and none of the blog posts on using this coroutine in bash worked at all. I was like, I found one article. Oh, this looks promising. I tried to replicate it. It doesn't work. All right. Well, let me try the next article. That didn't work. Next article. That didn't work. I was like, oh, oh man. So when you ever struggle like that, I said, all right, what's the hammer that I know? and What's the nails I can hit? Yeah. So I basically said, all right, I'm going to create a, uh, so I'm going to do the bash script, but what would normally just say, hey, just start the backup. It's actually going to run a Postgres procedure. And that is independent. And so basically what that does is it has a built-in loop. So it says, all right, start the backup, then go into a loop. And I actually created a table in the database too to manage backup state. So basically the process of the procedure can check the database to see what the status is, has a snapshot finished. Then this, the script continues after it kicks off, kicks off the procedure because it does it as a background job in the bash script. So that procedure is just running there waiting for the snapshot to be done. The bash script finishes doing the snapshot and then it updates that table because again, that's the stored state for these two processes and can say, all right, I'm done now. And now the procedure can see that, oh, it's done. All right, I can now close out the backup. So it's a little convoluted, but it works right now. Well, as long as it works. And that's I wonder why they why they would do that. I mean, there must be a good reason, but I can't fathom what that would be. Yeah, I I remember looking it up and reading the rationale behind it, but I've forgotten it. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> All I know is it's just a little bit more frustrating and less convenient for doing it. Yeah, I mean, the this is an atypical scenario for backing up the database. A lot of people don't do it this way. Um, and th th there are some people that do it th this way and it does have its use cases, but, but you know, like doing it this, this way, you can't have a point in time recovery. Like you can't bring the dat database back up to the point it was at 8.30 in the morning. Oh, wow. Ooh, yeah. Well, cause you're doing a snapshot. Yeah. You're, you know, and it basically, it, the backup is at the point the snapshot was taken. Yeah, yeah. So it has a lot of disadvantages, so not a lot of people are going to do that. But given how this database is being used, they wanted to choose that path as opposed to the other one. So mm. anyway, so what about you? Um, How's your week? Yeah, I mean, good, uh, but it's it's because end of year and we're just about to hit our code freeze, so we put our last production release out today. Um. So I guess technically we're in the code freeze now, but that means we're trying to get all the admin work done for closing out the end of the year stuff, all the retrospectives and all those things, um, and then start working on what initiatives we want to prioritize for January and start the year running on that. So it's all the, all the little you know, hundreds of little things going on. No one thing is too terribly complicated, but you know, when you when you've got a hundred of them in the air at the same time, that gets a little 
little nutty. Yeah, like like a big punch list. Yeah. So and um, but it's fun. I'm getting to dig into some some fun things that are non programming related. I'm not I'm not um, fingers on keyboard a lot this week. Well, programming. I'm actually doing. Like one of the things I'm working on is getting the list together for platform of what initiatives we're going to want and putting those together into some um, some voting presentations so that we can get together and kind of decide as a group, okay, what, you know, how impactful is this? Um, how complicated is it to implement and start looking at, um, okay, how should we prioritize these things based on all these different factors for them? So it's kind of a, it's a fun thing to do once in a while. I wouldn't want to do that all the time, but you know, it's, it's a nice little break this time of year from banging on the keyboard. Um, so anyway, just lots of little admin things, not much programming right. things, but, but it's good. And I'm, I'm super ready for a break Christmas. I'm getting to take two weeks off this year. So that's really nice. Just shut my brain down for a little while. So, all right. Yeah, so, there will be. Yeah. So, on to putting uh, business logic in your database. Uh, you know, we've, everybody has these discussions about where to put your business logic. Database is not one I see come up very often. So, you, <laughs> so, you kind of you kind of floated this idea for this for this show, so I'm going to let you start with um, giving your thoughts on well, first of all, what does that mean really? Because you're not putting Ruby code in your database. Um, Although so, you can quite easily put Python code in your database. Yes, you can. At least Postgres. Um, and I'm sure there's a way you could get Ruby. <laughs> but it's not like you're coding your classes into your database, so. So what are we talking about when we say putting business logic in your database? So it means putting a lot of decisions that basically is, is the underpinnings of how your application works in the database. Now, for example, I think of this as a continuum. And let's say... I know an application, a web-based application, 20 years ago, written in ASP, and no, it wasn't even called that. It, no, it was Active Server Pages, mm -hmm. Microsoft's Active Server Pages. This was pre.NET. So yeah. this is before .NET, there was Active Server Pages. And this was a um, developed software program that whom I used to work for purchased and how it worked was it had, it wasn't PHP, well, no, it was Active Server Pages, and they would call stored procedures in the database. So they never made any select, insert, update calls. All the, a lot of logic with regard to what tables get updated and how things were handled were done at a layer above the raw tables. So in other words, Whenever a page was rendered, it would call an active serve, excuse me, a stored procedure in the database. Whenever it needed to insert data, it would call a stored procedure to do that insert. And that may update multiple tables or do different, you know, do different things. So this is what you could think of 
a method in a Ruby program may do. So they put a lot of business lo logic in the database. Yeah. Now, let's say when Ruby on Rails got started, they were probably, they just treated the database as just this dumb thing where you just throw your data into it and then you pull your data out of it. And they wanted no business logic at all in there because, <laughs> you know, I just need it as a data store. Yeah. So I think those are kind of the continuums. A lot of business logic in the database to uh, don't put any business logic in a database. It's just a dumb hash store or whatever. Right. So like, and people are going to be on a continuum between that. And I think that's pretty much what people agree to today. There's some sort of continuum. And the where I tend to land on it is it's important to put business logic things related to data relationships in the database. I don't want to put all my other business logic in the database because that's just too hard to work through and I'll get into some more details here. So I thought of this presentation about, okay, what are some of the different objects and how you can use them to um, essentially store business logic? So I was just gonna kind of march through and discuss those. Did you have anything you wanted to uh, talk about before I jump into that? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I Yeah, I think you're kind of hitting it on the head there where, you know, because when I started, think about databases, it's just a data store. It doesn't do anything except hold pieces of data. But then, you know, I I have seen some things where there's just tremendous amounts of logic built into the database, and it's doing so much that it, in my opinion, is too much because it gets hard to troubleshoot, it gets hard to trace things, and you've got no code on your platform to kind of and, figure and out what's going on. More importantly, you have less tools to figure it out and diagnose what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think you're right. There's a, there's kind of a sweet spot between those two things where you get the benefits of the speed and, and, you know, the database doing databasey things on the database server rather than talking back and forth and wasting that time. But you also get the the benefits of um, maintainability, having code, and that the the database isn't too smart. Yeah, and I I think it's also team based. So different teams will choose where their sweet spot is. I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. So like uh, the first objects I'm going to talk about uh, are uh, constraints. Now, I'll talk about constraints specifically, but this is any kind of way that you're constraining the data. So the most obvious way is using appropriate data types <laughs> because those in and of itself constrain the data you put in. And you may say, you know, our ID is essentially uh, going to be no larger than an N4. So, okay, that's the data type you're going to use for that particular data. So. That is kind of a business logic -y thing to do. Yeah. Putting constraints, you know, because you on are your enforcing data. some rules. Not everything is exactly. a string, kids. Exactly. exactly, exactly. It's not like you're putting everything as a string. So you are putting some constraints on the data that you're putting in there. Right. 
but their other are what like Postgres, which I'm going to focus on, actually talks about constraints. So there's uh, null constraints. You know, do you want to put nulls in there or not? Um, there are unique constraints. So that's clearly a business case of, hey, we shouldn't have, uh, you know, the form with the same field name, for example. Oh, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, so those are unique constraints. There's also primary keys, which is a way to assure uniqueness as well as pull out data very quickly. Um, there's also exclusion constraints. So exclusion constraints are great for, like if you are trying to book a room and you have like a range data type, you can actually say, is this room available for these dates? So having that kind of logic in the database is so much easier to code than it is if you were to do it in your application. So it has that already built into Postgres be, being able to handle that kind of exclusion con constraint. And the other thing of what is typically known as constraint is basically check constraints. So you can say whether something should have a minimum value or maximum value or specific values. So if you have a, an ID you want to have be a capital letter and nine digits, you can actually specify a check constraint to, to be that. So I would say all of this different class of constraints are a way that you're kind of putting some business logic into your data. Yep. And into the database. Yeah, and I think some, this is kind of a place where I see a lot of people forgetting about the fact that databases can do this kind of stuff, especially if you're in a Rails environment, because they put all these validations in Rails, but they don't back it up in the database. Those those kind of validations should be in both places. You want those things in your database layer because if you write an API that accesses that stuff and it happens to not go through that Rails model, well, now you can screw up your data because you don't have the rules in the database. And there's even Rails commands that bypasses, I think, you know, they can bypass some of those validations. Yeah, like doing a delete instead of a destroy. Yeah. Now you can do all kinds of nasty things. So, yeah, I know it's extra work because now you probably have to do validation at the front end level and now at your application or the Rails level and then maybe at the database level. But I mean, maybe, but it's one of those ounce of prevention, pound of cure things. True, true. So, you know, once you get up to a certain size and sophistication, then you're kind of, you know, you're going to want to more, you're going to want to implement some of these constraints in the database as well. Yeah. So another area that's still kind of in the constraint field is foreign keys. So setting them up and defining your relationships of the data according to your business is important as well. So using foreign key constraints is another area to, to focus on. Yep. Uh, so another one is types. Now, databases handle this differently. I'm specifically going to be talking about Postgres types. So these are custom data types that you can create. Now, you could basically create 
any sequence of uh, primitive types and stick them together, and that would be your own type. Like I've seen people do things like have an address type, which basically concatenates the address line fields and the city and the state and the zip. I think that may be pushing a little bit too far. Yeah. But it's it's there that you can use it if you find it beneficial. Um, one thing I've seen it used for is basically you can cre create an enum type and have your different values in there. And then you create an enum using that data type that you just created in like a status field. So like if you have five different statuses, you would create an enum type with those only those five statuses. And then you could use that status when you create your table. And it's got the kind of the validation of those types built in right. stuff so that you, those somebody can't ones stuff something. And I'm assuming too that like on a front end, you can probably pull from the database and get what are the available types. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Now, um, so those are types and Postgres, uh, different databases may call them different things. The other thing that Postgres has, it's a little bit, I don't like the name so much, but it is what it is. It's called domains, which um, it's an, I consider it another custom data type, but what it is, it's a data type with built-in constraints. So like the example in the Postgres documentation, you can create a postal code with pre-built constraints within it. And then you can essentially, when you're, defining your data type, you just say, use the postal code data type. Mm, and yeah. it will already automatically already have your constraints that have already been defined for the postal code. Now, back where I was talking about, you know, if you have some sort of unique identifier that this needs to be um, one letter and six digits, well, you could define a domain that, that's called, you know, the yo-yo ID or whatever. <laughs> And it has those exact constraints. And now you could use that YoYo ID data type in any other table in the whole system that you want. So again, this is kind of business logic that's applying some logic to how your data is laid out, but it, it's in very tied to the data. Yeah. So I think these are acceptable use cases for um, placing some of this logic in your database. Right. And so these are kind of rules about particular pieces of data. Um, so it's not like rules about flow or, or user yeah, interaction. No. This, this stuff you're talking about is rules about particular pieces of data. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's essential because, again, it goes to, toward what the database does well. It keeps your data safe and consistent. Yeah. So those are the things that... I think are kind of a no-brainer. Other people may disagree, but I think they're kind of a no-brainer for the the database to do that sort of work. Yeah. Um, the other area I thought about that is kind of a no-brainer is um, doing partitioning. Now, is this business logic? Not necessarily. Eh, not necessarily. But if you're going to do partitioning, whatever you do, don't put that logic in your application. <laughs> Leave it to the database. <laughs> And, and it's already built to separate the data into multiple tables that way. I mean, and I guess it it depends on how 
narrowly you define the term business logic because this is kind of an architecture choice, but it can affect it, it can affect your customers and how how you choose to implement other bits of business logic based on how you architect things like this. Yeah, I mean, like for example, if you say this particular data we are only going to store one year of, so that's a business decision. Well, partitioning is a great use case for that because you could say partition the data by day or by month. And then when that year rolls around, you can drop the table yep. for that month that has then passed past the year or the day, you know, or by day. So, yeah. So the now we're starting getting into ones that are kind of like, I wouldn't call no-brainers, but they're kind of, you kind of decide how you want to go. Right. And that is views. So should you use views? So I think they can be a convenience, um, but I personally, I mean, even though I'm a database guy, the only use cases that I've used for views is in some reporting. Yeah. So there's a few reports I wanted to do, and it just made it more convenient um, to, because frankly, sometimes I it's much easier for me to write an SQL query to do a report than it is to use some of Rails, uh, the ORM to build the query. Yeah. That's that's just me and history where I've come from, um, but it is a reporting language, frankly. <laughs> so. Yeah. If it doesn't have to be too dynamic, I find it much easier to write a view and then just tell Rails or the web application, all right, just pull the data from this this view. Yeah, I've actually used views before when I've had complicated, I've run into complicated um, data structures. You know, it's just tables related to tables all over the place and things are not, not very obvious as to how they kludge together. Um, so I've used views sometimes to write like, okay, here's this, I kind of redefine my own tables so that when I have to go write SQLs, they're simpler and make sense. Um, so I've kind of used the views as, as a, uh, I don't want to call it an abstraction layer cause it's like an abstraction layer kind of, um, on top of a, a nasty table structure. Um, so that, you know, on the coding side, things get a lot easier and cleaner and, and people can understand what's going on in the code. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think those are valuable valuable use cases for, for views on occasion. And then even from a performance perspective, sometimes utilizing materialized views. So basically, that's a view that you actually make into its own table by storing the data and refreshing it on a periodic basis. Sometimes there's business use cases for having that from a performance perspective. Yep. And now the next one in kind of the iffy area, and but but I think there are use cases for it, is triggers. So basically a trigger is something that when you do something to a table, you insert, you update, delete, something else happens. 
Now that sounds suspiciously like a callback <laughs> <laughs> because you're like, all it did was update this value and suddenly 30 values in this other table got updated. What the heck just happened? You know, that could potentially be a trigger at work. So for that reason, I would be very cautious about using triggers. But one where I have used it is two use cases. One is for keeping a TS vector column for full text search up to date. So something gets updated in a particular table or in another table and a search string needs to be updated. A lot of times I use a trigger for that purpose. And although there are other tools like something called generated columns that can do that for you too. But if I actually had a situation where I actually had to use a trigger given some different dictionary uses for a full text search use case. But anyway, I think that's an acceptable use case for triggers is keeping something like that up to date so that you're fast. So, so that things like full text search is fast or your similarity search is fast. Uh, the other use case is a temporary use case. So for example, you're <clears throat> needing to move from a table that has an int to a big int because you're gonna run out of ints eventually. Well, you need to maybe replicate a table, backfill the data and do things like so. That's a temporary use case of a trigger. It's there for the purposes of keeping data in sync and moving it around, but it's eventually going to go away. It's not something that's an inherent part of the um, application you're going to be sticking around. So I, and one thing I would definitely not do is put like a bunch of business logic in, in a trigger necessarily. So I, I would kind of actively avoid that. But but what is your opinion on triggers? Um, I, I I've used them before, but you're right. It, what it what I've almost always run into with them is they turn into black box black box magic where I don't know what the yeah. hell just happened. How did this data get here? And it's not like you can trace through code to figure that out. You have to yep. just start go looking through the database and say, oh, well, there's a trigger there, duh. But that's not the first place you're going to look. You're going to be spending hours tracing through your code, trying to figure out what the hell's going on with that. What piece of my Ruby code updated this table? Right. And then the answer is none. <laughs> none. It's a trigger in your database. <laughs> or it's a, exactly. Well, who the hell did that? Me six months ago. You idiot. <laughs> so that's why I said there a little bit like callbacks and those these, these mysterious things that you know yeah cause you know ramifications down the line so again i i have used it for those two use cases temporary use case for handling transition periods of for data and then the second use case is keeping um like uh, particular columns up to date for full text search or similarity search purposes. Right. So, so the next area is ones that other than temporary use, I really wouldn't do. And that is 
basically functions. <laughs> so, and when people think of putting business logic in the database, they'll probably say, Hey, I'm going to write my own functions and it, it'll be great. You know? Yeah. I, I would generally not write functions for that purpose. I do write functions frequently for DBA tasks. Again, I think of these as more temporary, but they're not something that's going to be running and utilizing like a daily business logic use case usage. And now related to functions or procedures, which they're, again, databases handle them differently, but basically functions operate just within a um, single commit. And they can be as simple as, hey, take this value, you know, like two plus two, do a sum of values or something. Whereas procedures can operate across um, or can have multiple commits in them so that a lot more work can be done. So what's your opinion on functions and procedures and whatnot? So uh, I've worked with a database um, at a job a while back that was... Um, that heavily used functions. Uh, it was an MSSQL database, but it it was like almost everything that you did in the database was calling a function in the database, right? So Ruby, so the Ruby code was really simple, but you couldn't figure out how the hell anything worked because you can't trace database functions re really. So it was it was a it was nice from the perspective of it can simplify your your Ruby code a lot, your ORM stuff, but making changes to that that logic or what happens to data gets to be really tedious because now I have to write a, a complicated database migration to basically drop that function and create a new one with some edits. But I have to go back and get that function to begin with because you can't just, you know, can't really just, oh, add add this field to this function. You've got to basically write the whole function again or copy it all. So you got to drop the thing, copy it all, make your edit. I've got a whole new migration. Now I want to find out how, how the hell this happened in my Ruby code. Well, I've got to go look in database code. So they can be useful for doing simplistic rulish type things that are going to be um, not complex, that will always happen because of the definition of how you laid your data out, and that you don't want to have to do over and over in your Ruby code or your front-end code. So they can be useful for that, uh, but again, it, it kind of obfuscates how your data is being processed from your Ruby code. So it, it can get a bit dangerous using those things. Um, yeah, I, th I think simple functions, with, like without side effects, like all it is is taking a few values that are being returned and maybe puts it in a different format. I think a simple function like that, if you wanted to do it in the database, but that would be fine, you know, if your team wants to do that. Um, but yeah, anything more than that, because like what you were just described sound like sound sounded like the active server page application I was thinking about two decades ago. Yeah. Where everything was a stored procedure. Right. And you know, I think I think they're much safer and more useful pulling data out, modifying data as you're reading it, 
rather than trying to modify data as you're storing it. So for instance, something like a function that will build you a, an entire address blob out of individual fields, you know, that, that yeah. kind of thing, because I'm not actually mucking with my data. Um, it, and then you get into, well, is that a view or a function or what, you know, it depends on what you have to, how you have to get there. But, um, yes. Yeah, so but again, you're right. Working with functions is very frustrating with regard to what you were saying in terms of you can't just, hey, just replace this line and update. Yes, yeah. literally, you have to recompile or, you know, basically create or replace the whole function every time you do it. Right. So and that in and of itself is just a difficult. It's exercise. a pain in the ass. Um, I, you know, I do see where they might be useful for kind of some backend regular maintenance type things um, where, you know, I, I need to do some stuff to the database. We need to do, you know, like our annual code clean or annual data cleanup and archival things and stuff like that where I'm, you know, I'm, I don't want to have to write a crap ton of SQLs. So I've got these functions that'll do stuff and I can just call the functions in a, in a batch at the end of the year and let it yeah. do some admin stuff. But from the front end of programming, I don't like to use them too much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think we're on the same page yeah. with regard to that. All right. So those, those are pretty much the, the ways in which I would tend to put apply business logic to the database. So it's, it's not really a lot of, you know, nothing about flow control, nothing about anything of that nature in the database. It's basically trying to keep your data secure and, and consistent. Now, uh, I did want to follow up with two other points to mention. There is a way, if you did store more business logic-y things in your database to get some more performance, but then a way to hurt performance. So a performance benefit of putting that I've heard of some teams do of putting more business logic in the database is when they're working with JSON APIs. Because Postgres can, you can give it a query and it can return raw JSON. So what these teams have done for some of their APIs is that they just query the database and they take the raw JSON back and they just fared it right out to the end user. So they bypass the ORM, so there's no object relational mapper because they're just, so no objects need to be instantiated, so it's super fast. Um, and they don't have to build the JSON or do anything like that. It's just uh, goes straight to them. And then they do, you actually get to bypass a lot of Ruby processing. And you're essentially using C if you're using a Postgres database so in general, it processes much faster than equivalent Ruby code would. Yeah. So that could be a benefit for like a JSON API, some performance benefits if you put that type of business logic in the database. Now on the other side of it, what is the hardest thing to scale in your application? Or what are you going to hit the limit on in your application typically? 
well, for us, most of the time it's memory, but I guess that depends on, on your architecture. Which, on which on which um, server, for example. Well, on most of our our um, our actual Ruby servers, um, because of all the object instantiations. Okay, but well, sorry, I probably shouldn't have asked the question this way, but you could e probably easily put you can easily scale application servers. You can get more application servers. You can get fifteen. You can get twenty. You can get fifty. You could oh, increase right. the size of those quite easily. But the problem, if at least if you're running a relational database like Postgres or Oracle or MySQL is there's typically, unless you're doing multi-master, there's typically only one database. Yeah. And if you want to make it bigger, you just got to keep going bigger and bigger. and You can't really scale out as easily as you can with application instances. Right. So that is where you can hit a barrier. The more business logic you put in your database, the slower it can do the things it is good at. Right. So handling concurrent access for thousands of connections to all of the data and keeping it consistent and locked appropriately so that not more than one person can change the data at once. So the more business logic you put in the database, you're going to hit that limit sooner. Right. Yep. And actually that was a problem of this application now that I think about it, the one from a couple of decades ago, in that it was actually the database that started having issues, the one that had all the stored procedures. Yeah, and that used to be an even bigger problem before the advent of SSDs because your your hard drive access was typically a huge bottleneck in your system. And every time the database would read or write something, it's going into the data into the hard drive. So the more stuff you put in there, the worse it got. Yep. You know, forgetting about caching and that kind of thing. There's stuff you can do in memory, but th that's gotten to be a much less of a problem with SSD, but that's still a significant issue. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically because you can quite easily ramp up 50, 100, 200, I mean, however many application servers you want, or even worker boxes, you know, you can go to the moon. But if you have a relational database and you don't have a service-oriented architecture, you've got one database. <laughs> so the more that you ask it to, do, to the more that you ask it to do, the more business logic you ask it to process, the slower it's going to be doing the other things that only only it can do. Right. So that's a that's an argument not to put too, too much business logic in your database. Yeah. So I I think the kind of the thinking here, um, the, the, the summary of this is you don't want to put things like flow control type business logic in your database. That doesn't make a lot of sense, even though you yeah. can do that to a point, probably shouldn't because there just isn't enough benefit there. You lose uh, maintainability, you lose traceability, um, you slow your database down, uh, because that's not the thing the database is good at. So probably shouldn't put those kind of things in there. You probably should almost always put constraint-type logic in there. 
because that's what the database is for, making sure your data doesn't get screwed up. And that part of that are the constraints and the checks. Um, so when, when most people talk about business logic, what they're thinking is more flow control and, and how, how the data is processed in the system. So, you know, if you define business logic like that, pretty much doesn't belong in your database. But that's not all your business logic because data and, and its uh, state is part of really your business logic. And so the control of that data and the safety of that data is really the job of the database. We're, we're making the assumption that we're talking about relational databases here. This is this is a different conversation if you're talking about, you know, flat file structures or things like Mongo and stuff like that. So um, we're, we're talking about relational databases, but that's, you know, the majority of apps are backed by relational databases. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe it's more like, you know, business rules yeah. as opposed to business logic. So definitely your business rules for data and their relationships, you know, all that definitely belongs in the database as opposed to, you know, trying to do something in your application. Right. Now, do we say never put any business logic in your database? Not never, but if you're doing that, you probably ought to think hard about it because there may be some back-end admin-y type things that, that functions would be good for or that, you know, stored procs would be good for. But probably if you're doing functions or stored procs, it's not a good idea. You know, it's yeah. going to be a, a rare case. If it's especially if it's a stored proc or something that you're accessing from your code that does all your flow control, you probably want to look at that because chances are that's not a good idea. So, so should you put business logic in your database? Uh, yes and no. Depends on which business logic you're talking about. Um, but flow control, no. Constraint, yes. Data safety, yes. Those kind of things, for sure. So uh, that brings us about to the end of our time. Um, that was actually kind of fun. I, I miss hanging out in the database world. I don't get to do that a lot anymore, and that's kind of where I started. So uh, it's fun to fun to dive back into that from time to time. Um, hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, please make sure to like, subscribe, follow, depending on whether you're seeing this on YouTube or Twitch. Um, we, we stream to both places. Also, if you prefer listening to this as an audio-only podcast, you can find those podcasts everywhere that podcasts live. Um, we strip the audio right out of this presentation and give you the same thing in podcast form. So you can find those all there. Also, you can find all this stuff on our website, rubberduckdevshow.com. Uh, and follow us on Twitter at Ducky Dev Show, um, where I routinely say stupid things and also let you know what's going on uh, during the week and what our what our schedule is. Speaking of schedules, this is our last show before the holidays. We are going to take a little break um, because 
at, at least one of us is pretty worn out and needs some downtime. So uh, we will be back with Rubber Duck Dev Show on January 11th with Sebastian Vilgos. Pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. Uh, but he's, he's uh, Sebastian is the one that does Hanami Mastery, um, those courses. So we'll be talking to him um, about, well, at this point, what we're, what we're thinking about is talking to him about um, his note-taking processes, because he's done a lot of research on how to take notes and, and effective tools to use. And that's something I really suck at. So I'm I'm very interested to have a chat with him about that. Um, I did have a, a two-hour Zoom call with him the last week, and it was it was really fun talking to him. He's a nice guy. So I'm looking forward to having him on the show. Um, also, next Tuesday morning, uh, the 13th, I will be on their show uh, to talk about streaming stuff. Um, so I will be on there. It'll be 8 a.m. Eastern time because they're running from Poland, so um, they'll be in their afternoon. So I will put some stuff on Twitter about, you know, links to his his channel and all that stuff. We'll be on Twitch there. Uh, that should be a fun conversation. Um, so we will be back on January 11th. Uh, I'm going to take a break from the coding with Chris as well, uh, because I just need some some time to spend with family and just, you know, hang out and turn my brain off for a little bit. Uh, but we will be back next year. I hope everybody has a wonderful whichever holiday you celebrate um, and has lots of fun with your family and eats lots of good food. And we will see you next year. So until then, happy programming. Happy programming.